0: To the latest episode of *Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature*, I'm Vicky Riley
1: and I'm Christian Kerr,
0: and we are still travelling along the highways and byways of Scottish literature, introducing you to the best Scottish writing. Though today we thought we'd do something completely different. Yeah, so on our travels, we've realised we've we've not really done the twenty-first century.
1: No, we are bang up to date.
0: Yeah, so we thought. Why not do something a little bit more contemporary because who knows, maybe today's contemporary success will be next century's classic. Um, so today we're looking at Gail Honeyman's huge bestseller, Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine. It's a debut which I believe is this year's bestselling book so far. Unless it's David Williams.
1: Well, you know, book written for adults. yeah so. yeah,
0: because it seems that this year in particular, if it's not number one in the paperback chart, it's number one in the ebook chart and it's just it just keeps trucking and trucking and the sales show no sign of slowing down. <laughs> yeah, which is great because it's a, it's been a shining example of what we call a word of mouth success um, and it's a real page turner. And it's a lovely tale of loneliness, acts of kindness, and how a lost soul can find their way again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the sales just like really speak for themselves. It's yeah. astonishing. 90,000 in hardback, and then more than half a million oh, in paperback, yeah. and... That's just a lot of Ellen Oliphant and who being knows? completely fine all over the place.
0: Yeah, who knows how many ebooks.
1: <laughs> yeah, no one knows. Maybe Amazon. <laughs>
0: yeah. But I'm staying with the theme of Lost Souls. Um, we will also be talking to Isla Durer later on about her latest novel, It Takes One to Know One, which tells the story of um, Charlie Gavin, who's a proprietor of the Be Kindly Missing Persons Bureau, he um, goes in search of missing people, and his assistant Martha, and both of them, even though they're not officially missing, they are rather lost as well. Yes, they are.
1: Yeah.
0: And like Honeyman, uh, Dewar's novel is full of ordinary yet intriguing characters, and the the books have bags of compassion and empathy, um, which I think um, has struck a real chord. Maybe in two thousand and eighteen.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. I think small acts of kindness yeah. and um, just everyday kindness yeah. as well, like stories about the everyday mm-hmm. being good, finding some good in the everyday. Yeah, is definitely a sort of theme of twenty
0: eighteen. Yeah, um, both writers we could probably say are could be grouped under. Maybe it's the dreaded word, I don't know, because mm-hmm. dre- I don't think it should be the dreaded mm-hmm. word, middle brow fiction, um, which I think is a genre, a categorisation, um, is probably quite maligned, unfairly.
1: <laughs> yeah, well I think it's a really interesting question yeah, about t- whether it sort of... If it's middle brow, is it, is it really aspirational? Yeah. Right? Is it trying to be high brow, but it's still just middle brow?
0: It's, it's, it's sometimes used in a pejorative way, the term yeah. middle brow, but yeah. actually to me it is more of a categorization thing. Mm-hmm. And so, like the word nice, it's, it's, <laughs> it's underrated. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's ordinary and good. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's of a piece.
0: Yeah. And I suppose middle brow. Fiction too is probably not um, a category that a lot of people might think of when they think of Scottish writing, Scottish literature, because like it or not, um, we 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 are kind of well known for all the cliches of <laughs> urban, dark, masculine literature, I, and yet we do have a growing contingent of successful writers that don't go down those well-trodden paths, that um, that do show the actual real variety of voices in Scottish literature.
1: Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I think that um, certainly on, in you know the late 20th century and 21st century, mm. Scottish fiction has really diversified, yeah. and that's a lot to do with the fact that you know a lot of our most successful writers right now and highest quality writing is coming from women. Mm. And um, I think also one of the things that's going on is when when we say, when we think of Scottish literature, we're still thinking about a canon.
0: Yeah. And that
1: is, uh, you know, dark and urban and masculine. Yeah. Although it's certainly true, there's also plenty of dark, urban, masculine Scottish literature that is still middle brow. (laughs) Here's looking at you, Tartan Noir.
0: Anyway, but back to um, Gail Honeyman, yep. um, who, um, in some ways, kind of feels like a really unlikely literary phenomenon. You know, like you know, since the publication of Eleanor Oliphant and despite its massive success, yeah. she herself's not very visible.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, like um, I, I don't recall any, you know, big festival appearances or. And she's had very few media appearances. I think she's been interviewed by like The Guardian and The Telegraph, but you know, she's not in the media a lot. And I had a quick look at her, her um, Twitter page. And uh, she's not tweeted since 2017. (laughs) She's not, you know, on Radio 4 and she's not... Yeah, she's not
1: become a talking head. This is so fascinating. I hadn't noticed this until you pointed it out. Yeah. Because um, I suppose the bestseller visibility is just... So they become the part
0: of that world, yeah, and, yeah. and she's not really done that
1: yet. Do you, so, so do you think that that's her choice to keep a low profile, yeah. or do you think it's to do with the fact that, um, you know, literary journalism doesn't isn't particularly interested in promoting the the middle brow.
0: But then you get a lot of middle brow writers on Radio Four and writing columns. Yeah for the Guardian books mm. pages and mm. or and all mm. that kind of thing. So I wonder if it's because she still lives in Glasgow.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well that too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but like it very much feels like the Eleanor Oliphant, despite its great success, it's like a quiet phenomenon. Yeah. It's quite it's weird. It's like I mean, there was an eight way bidding war for her book. Um and, you know, she got quite a, a pretty penny's worth for an advance. And she won the Costa Book Prize. And rights have been sold to 30 yeah. and counting countries. And Reese Witherspoon's bought the rights for it to make a film. Mm. And so all these things would usually sort of...
1: Pile up one on top of yeah. the other as part of a sort of fanfare. Yeah. And yeah. yet, like,
0: you know, there seems less of a fuss about the great success of this book than say maybe like the Fifty Shades phenomenon or Twilight Mm. or even Gillian Flynn and Gone Girl and Girl in a Train and all those girl books.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I wonder whether it's because this is better than all of those. (laughs) I mean, certainly in terms of the quality of the writing, it far outstrips Twilight or uh, Fifty Shades. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, this is just in a different class but yet um, you don't
0: sell as many copies as Gail Honeyman has without um breaking through into the total mainstream yeah, of book buyers absolutely so it's it's, it's still really interesting that yeah. it's like she's not a secret but it feels like she mm. actually just quietly belongs to the people and yes. and that's enough
1: yeah <laughs> i mean i suppose also when i mean when we just think about um the the ones that you listed there like those are sort of you know they've got big subject matter it's big subject matter isn't mm. it well or, or not really big but you know sensational subject matter yeah, that's yeah. what I want to say yeah. so it's it's uh, vampires or <laughs> uh, bondage <laughs> or it's um, or it's uh, this question of domestic noir yeah, as yeah. as you as you say um, you know are we still in that moment um, mm. This isn't really that. No, I mean, there's, it's a much quieter. It's much,
0: but there is a little bit of domestic noir-ish yeah. traits in it. I would say, mm. you know, there's the twists and there's, the, you know, there's a there's a mystery in the background and, and yep. all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wonder. I mean, Gail Honeyman herself, with her lack of, you know, appearances in public and in the media, you know, the ones that I have read of her. She does really come. She comes across as really modest, really mm. self-effacing, and not um, not showy, yeah, and but or, also
1: deeply accomplished. Yeah, as yeah, well.
0: oh. yeah. I'm, but and also actually really keen to point out her ordinariness yes. rather than sort of saying I'm a special flower now. <laughs> right, right. Because I mean, her her um, her life before um, publication. She doesn't really go into, but from what we can glean. Um she was brought up in central Scotland, probably just outside Stirling, by a civil servant mother and a scientist father. Um she went to university in Glasgow and then did a doctorate in Oxford in 19th-century French poetry. Yeah. Which I don't find particularly <laughs> ordinary. <laughs> no, <me neither. laughs> but then she realized that um she didn't really like academia, so then went to work for the civil service herself and then as an administrator in Glasgow University and she in the interviews as well she doesn't say you know she was particularly dissatisfied with that that life that she had or or anything like that she just sort of says you know I was turning 40 and I thought let's give it a go because <laughs> that is the kind of thing you do when
1: you're just about to turn 40. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: And then it seems as soon as she made that decision to become a writer, that's when everything started happening really quickly. You know, she sent the first three chapters of um, Eleanor Oliphant to uh, um, the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize, and was shortlisted, and that's how she got her agent. And then, then the bidding war started with the agent, and so it seems like. And then it's just this roller coaster
1: success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that one of one of the things that's interesting, and I definitely think that this is a theme that is emerging over the months <laughs> that we've been uh, looking at um, novels. Actually, it's been a while since we did some poetry, isn't yes. it, on yes. the podcast? So Restrict we've final. we've definitely been doing quite a lot of novels, <laughs> um, and. Um, I don't know if this is... I'm sure this is not a a peculiarly Scottish trait, but it seems that there's a good clutch of novelists who achieved sensational success out of the gate, but starting late in life. Yeah. So you've got Muriel Spark publishing The Comforters at age 39, Mm. and um, Walter Scott, 43, I think, when Waverley is published in 1814, and then Alexander McCall Smith who's 50, with number one ladies. And of course, with these writers, I suppose they are a bit different from Gail Honeyman in that they had all published other books. Mm. But I do think there's something to do with writing assured fiction. Yeah. um, That comes with middle age.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you might might have a point there, because... um... Uh, I can understand why, in particular, she was shortlisted for that Lucy Cavendish mm-hmm. prize because the fir- particularly for me when I started reading Eleanor Oliphant, the first chapter, I think should be read by any aspiring writer yeah. to see how to write a first chapter. Right,
1: right. And you know,
0: as somebody and and you you can agree as somebody that's read a lot of manuscripts from first time authors and you see. The, the kind of sim- the mistakes that are made over and over again and she does none of that in in yeah. this one and it is a debut we still have to keep telling ourselves the debut yeah, like
1: that's crazy and and also given that's also what makes the hype thing weird isn't it yeah. because like debuts and hype uh, go together hand in hand mm. you know that's the one of the best sort of uh well one of the easiest ways to get hype mm. yeah
0: but like the, the first chapter like, she sets out everything really nicely and the tone and the voice of the character and the right amount of drip feeding of of the intrigue of what the sort of central mystery is and what could happen and and all that kind of thing and you feel comfortable as a reader like right off the bat yes it's it's very assured as you say yeah
1: it's so uh, should we talk a little bit more about this opening chapter yeah because it just sets everything up so well um the I think one of the reasons it's so effective is that she's introducing herself to the reader in this um, uh, way that is about that is so general. Mm, mm. And, and the first sentence is, when people ask me what I do, taxi drivers, dental hygienists, I tell them I work in an office. <laughs> yeah. And so you're instantly in this sort of Familiar situation, you know, where someone's like, "What do you do?" Yeah, and and you're like, "Are we going to have one of these conversations?" (laughs) You know, what should I say? I'm a lion tamer, (laughs) you know, Um, and it's um, not very often that
0: you get a a the the central star of a novel just as as a fairly lowly office worker. Yeah, they've always got quite highfalutin jobs or aspire to something. Very right. Highfalutin.
1: Yes, and then she and but what she's doing is she's sort of wrong-footing you there at the same time mm-hmm. because she's saying um, this is not going to be an ordinary yeah. thing. Like the writing is so, like already in the first sentence, there's a tartness mm-hmm. to it. Um, Whenever blah blah blah, but this is a specific telling of the yeah, story. Yeah. You know, and you're going to get more information now. And then she goes into this uh, description of the office which is um, uh, an advertising agency with creative graphic designers yeah. and she says I'm in the back office yeah. and it's just so there are the office tribes and they dress differently <laughs> yeah. and oh it's so the observations are just so acute yeah. and like considered.
0: Yeah and it wrong you because you know you walk along the streets and uh, like who would think that a mere office worker would be that observant and would be that um, clear and concise about right. you know the special
1: people that are the creatives and their and their particular <laughs> uniform they all dress the same um, and 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 then uh, she she just sort of sums up what she says about her work with this um, wonderful sentence that I just absolutely love <laughs> I could be issuing invoices for anything really armaments Rohypnol. Coconut. <laughs>
0: yeah. I remember that sentence as well. I was like, what a threesome. What, <laughs> what a threesome of words
1: to choose. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> even within this first chapter, um, you know, it begins with this sort of funny ordinariness. But then she does, it dives yeah. into. There's um, these, those the, hints.
0: Yeah. Hints that there's a much darker truth lying underneath um, this. Yeah. I think you're no right nonsense. though about it
1: being a sort of showcase for the yeah. novel, isn't it? Because she's she also she asked this question about whether she exists at all. Yeah. Um. And she felt one. She said, "Do I, am I a figment of my own imagination? Yeah. I am I tied to the earth by a gossamer thread? Yeah. Um. And. I think you have a sense that this sort of ironic voice is a little bit like, "Am I taking myself too seriously here? But you know like that's a I I hadn't I didn't really notice that as a question but it's an important question for the book Mm, absolutely
0: and for the rest of the story for a summary if you're not already familiar and so we're introduced to Eleanor as this loner who goes to her office work faithfully and dutifully from Monday to Friday and at the weekend goes home speaks to no one and downs two bottles of vodka every weekend and she lives alone a lot of vodka I know (laughs) she lives alone she has a difficult relationship with her mum who is in prison um we don't know what for and they have a weekly chat which always leaves Eleanor feeling depressed and there's hints of childhood neglect and probably more uh, actually abuse into that yeah and yet despite this she just doesn't deviate from this orderly routine
1: right and I think in this early chapter there are all these moments where she is sort of repeating like a as part of her routine yeah. sort of series of mantras about who she is and one of them is Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine yeah um and she says I've always taken great pride in managing my life alone yeah I'm a sole survivor I am a self-contained entity mm. and um that sort of repeats throughout the book mm-hmm. I think particularly
0: Often. in the first section yeah. yes and yeah. particularly
1: when she's sort of talking anything in relation to the phone calls from the mother you know which sort of under uh, you know undermine that in in some ways as well because the voice the the relationship is obviously so unstable Mm. and the mother's voice is very unstable too
0: yeah what it was funny while I was reading it I always found those bits the weakest part Mm. of the novel but then after reading the whole thing, right, it really makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed.
1: No spoilers here.
0: <laughs> no. So then, um, but then things start to change for Eleanor. So at work night out, she falls in love with a musician who is entirely unsuitable.
1: <laughs> oh, this is such
0: a great red herring. <laughs> I know. And then she, so she decides to go on a project of self improvement. Which is purely physical, really, because she goes for a haircut, she gets waxed, and.
1: She goes to the Bobby Brown counter, (laughs) and then she's like, Where's Bobby Brown then?
0: (laughs) I just love that. And, uh, you know, tries to get some, buy some more
1: fashionable uh, clothes Clothes and shoes. Yeah. And Mm. handbag, importantly, because of the shopper. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's really cinematic. Like, this whole thing is a sort of montage. Yeah, yeah. She sets up this story. Mm-hmm. Like the story with the musician as a possible story.
0: Yeah, as the main uh, yeah. narrative thread.
1: And as the thing that's pre- preoccupying her.
0: Yeah, uh huh.
1: It goes horribly wrong.
0: Yeah. but then, And also, her work employs a new IT guy called Raymond, who, unlike the rest of her colleagues, is happy to give her the time of day. <laughs> and um, uh, while they're walking home one day, they encounter an old man who is taken ill. He, and um, they take him to hospital and through that they both are introduced to Sammy's family and so through um, sort of doing things with Raymond and finding out more about Sammy's family, the old man that gives Eleanor a taste of a social life that she's never really yeah. had before and family
1: lives yeah, uh-huh. definitely and these are just people that live, you know, small, close affectionate life
0: yeah uh-huh and so like you think to yourself you know how can a novel be interesting when it's about going to the hairdressers or visiting a, a wee man in the hospital or yeah. or you know just going out for coffee with your colleague mm, and all that because mm. that's really the sort of the happenings that is the plot right, of right, the story right.
1: but they're invested with this sort of sense of wonder
0: and then there there comes a sort a denouement of sorts um, sort of maybe uh, two thirds of the way through, mm-hmm. and she realises the true nature of the musician <laughs> and realises that she was being a bit of a fantasist and fancying him. And then she descends into a really deep, deep depression. Yeah. And though that section there where she's first. Is really just that it It is. I, I was actually yeah. quite uncomfortable reading yeah. it because you know, you can be a bit of a method reader when you're reading novels and you kind of, you know, you sort of get. Into the mindset of the of the of the voice, particularly yeah. if it's first person like that. But those bits I would, I would take a little break just because yeah they were really um, really affecting. Um, but she comes through this depression in the end through her growing friendship with Raymond and her well and through therapy as yeah, well. Yeah, and, just and a,
1: again that's great too. Yeah. Like the depiction of that is just you know the resistance to it and then mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah and then there is quite the twist at the end but we're not going to say anything about that so what what do you think of that categorization for Eleanor Oliphant as uplit because everybody talks about how it's got a happy ending but I actually think it's a bit simplistic to yes, say that
1: absolutely yeah because um, as I
0: say the bit when she kind of has her breakdown was really quite raw to read yeah. I thought and also the twist at the end which we're not going to say anything about but what it actually does mm-hmm. is makes you question everything you've read
1: previously to that like I mean yeah everything. everything when you get it it's it has a resonance that is more than just oh it's that thing yeah 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 uh-huh. I think I think that's I think that's right I think you're yeah. right about I'm actually
0: it, quite surprised that there's not been more talk about it
1: yeah, considering how well-read the book is now. I think it's because um, people don't want to take it seriously. Right. They or they like, don't want to do a deep dive into a book like this.
0: No? Or maybe they just want to cling on to the happy ending.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I bang on. Yeah, because, I mean, one of the strengths of, the, of the, the novel as well is the ordinary everyday kindnesses, and Raymond and Sammy in, in particular completely uh, personify that. Yeah. They are just good, honest guys who, you know, aren't particularly bothered by appearances, by yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Like, yeah, they they take people at face value and they like to get to know people. Yeah,
1: well, and they have um, sort of, they have the social skills that she's lacking. Yeah. So <laughs> this is one of my absolute favourite things. And this is, I don't know, this is a very personal take, but I think it's hilarious that... Um, an Eleanor Oliphant's a classicist because she's always sort of passing the world in such a way as if she's literally translating. Yeah. The, her voice is sort of so authoritative you know like classics still has this sort of cultural cachet to you know even though it's a sort of slightly niche thing now <laughs> um, and I think this is one of the things that she's playing on here. Yeah. Eleanor is always translating what people are saying or taking it literally word for word. Yeah, or, cor- or, or sort of correcting them in her mind. Yes, <laughs> so when Sammy Tom says, my name is Sammy Tom, he, she says, it can't possibly be your name because <laughs> that's not a full name, yeah. you know, and it's actually just, if it was written down, it, she would get it. Yeah. Anyway, she just she doesn't have a sense of idiom.
0: And I read too in one of our um, interviews that um, she was... Very consciously, she wanted to set the novel in Glasgow, mm. um, where she where she lives and where she's probably lived most of her life. And she said, and she said, Glasgow is a very kind city, though I don't think it's always portrayed like that, which I think is great because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and and I just I also like the thought that she herself was subverting the tropes that we find all too often yes. in
1: fiction set in Glasgow. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. I think that this sort of sense of kindness and openness and friendliness mm. is, you know, yeah, intrinsically Glaswegian.
0: So I would highly recommend you read Eleanor Oliphant. Yeah, it's completely fine.
1: I was actually quite resistant to reading it. Me too. Um, until of... we decided to do this. Yeah. and I am so glad that I did. I
0: know. I know. I think it was it was just what I needed when I when, when I was reading it. Yep. Hello, so we're here in uh, the Berlin offices and today we're joined by the very wonderful Isla Dure. Hello, Isla. Hello. Mm
2: -hmm. Hello. Thank you for asking me to come. Yes. Thank you for coming. Yes.
0: (laughs) All the way from the Kingdom of Fife. Yes. Yes. Um, So we're awfully excited that um, we've just released your your brand new novel, Mm -hmm. Um, It Takes One to Know One. Yes. I'm very excited that you've done it. (laughs) (laughs) I love the cover. I, I'm very fond of that cover. Oh, brilliant. It's all, that's always a, a moment where you present an author with, with mm. a cover and sort of right. seek their approval.
2: I've never done that. I've always been the one that, whose approval was sought mm. and, oh. um, and whose disapproval was totally ignored. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you launched it last week at, yes. um, at Waterstones in St Andrews. Yes. yes. Um, so what was it that brought it takes one to know one. What was the, the genesis of the of genesis The genesis
2: of it was, um, actually start it started a long time ago. My son was obsessed for a while with Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and we used to buy all the Sherlock Holmes books and get Sherlock Holmes magazines and things. And I was taken by this man, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I read the books I hadn't read any books. I'd seen films and I knew all about them. Yeah, him. yeah. But, I
0: was a latecomer to Sherlock yes. Holmes as
2: well. And I was... Uh, as well as enjoying the books and, and admiring the whole structure of the writing and everything, I was struck by how right he was about everything. You know, <laughs> how he knew things. And you would say, oh, yes, Mrs McElvoy <laughs> see you had boiled eggs for a breakfast two days ago. <laughs> and, that. and i I watched on tv and, I, and I'd also read other detective novels and even when you looked at somebody like Sam Spade mm. they were always right and I thought what would it be like if you wrote about a detective who wasn't always right <laughs> <laughs> a detective who got it wrong and it had started from there but then it, it like books do and you're writing them it developed and mm-hmm. Martha came along and um unexpectedly she suddenly appeared on the page and I said who's that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, Charlie Gavin who's the hero of the book became kindly Mm -hmm. rather than wrong about everything I preferred that right there's a lot of stuff on television and on radio and in books about men who are stupid you know Mm -hmm. and I thought I'm well, if he was stupid, he wouldn't become a detective. Well, he might anyway. But you know, I thought, I thought no, I'll make him kindly and a bit, a bit soft-hearted, right? You know, which yeah. suited Martha being a little bit sharper, yeah. a little bit more yeah. cynical.
0: So if um, if there are readers out there aware, um, it takes one to know one. Starts with um, Charlie Gavin who runs a a missing person. It's it's not, it's less of a detective agency and more of a missing persons yes. bureau. Yes, he, he
2: denies he's a detective. He, yeah, he, he mm-hmm. says that he he has instincts for finding people.
0: Yeah, and Martha becomes his assistant. Yes, yeah, yes.
2: that's right. It starts off with him interviewing her, and um, then we learn that he's actually. Knew who he knew who she was and he's actually secretly admired her from afar for some mm-hmm. time. But um, yes, she's, she's a lot more cynical than he is. She's, uh, she has to be, I yeah. think, with such a softie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite a, a nice mix of, of genres that you've got um, going with, with this book. You've got the sort of... There is, there is a, a through line of a mystery to be solved by Charlie and Martha... Yes, and but then you've also got the will they, won't they romance element as well.
2: Yes, there's that as well and and there's also a family in the background because mm-hmm. I seem to always have a family there they <laughs> suddenly appear um, I, I quite often write about families, I quite like writing about families, the mix of people, the different personalities you get and they usually all maybe not get along but they usually at some point in the depth of the relationship love each other but that's maybe at the bottom bit, you know. There's arguments and things further
1: up. Yes, because uh, you've got um, Martha and Sophie and mm-hmm. Evie or yes. Evie, 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 yes. Evie. Um, as as a sort of biological family unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But then Charlie, Charlie lives in this house uh, full of found people, <laughs> and yes. it's it's wonderful, sort of. <laughs> Balance between the two. Yes,
2: it amused me that Charlie would find people who didn't want to be found, and he didn't know what to do with them <laughs> once they've bit, been found. Yeah, he brings them home. It's <laughs> a little bit like um, picking up driftwood or stuff yes. on the beach yes. <laughs> and taking it home and not knowing what to do with it. And he sort of slinks off to his bit of the house and leaves it to leaves the rest of the house to the other people. But um, yes. And I, I quite enjoyed when he went off to find a woman who he knew was sleeping in a doorway in the dreadful room. Mm. He couldn't sleep because he knew where she was. Yes, and he, he lures people well, not lures, that sounds a bit yeah. murky but he, he tempts people back to his house with the promise of clean sheets, which he thinks is <laughs> the ultimate luxury. We all, yeah, we thing. all love,
0: love clean sheets. <laughs> <laughs> no and so as you said earlier you started off by having by thinking about a, a more usual detective story but just the twist was on the character yes that's right and then it's it became something else it became more about just the characters in it mm-hmm. like the, the different families the different people that Charlie finds what made you decide that maybe you didn't want to Go strictly down. Well, the I knew more that element.
2: there wouldn't be gruesome murders, and I, I just mm-hmm. couldn't write that. It's mm-hmm. not it's not there. It's not inside. Um, and I always say when I'm writing a book, guy, I, I know roughly what's going to happen, but you have to leave, have to leave it loose a bit. Give people, as I say, room to dance. Mm-hmm. Give your characters um, a chance to develop their own lives and. Um, this is really what happened in this book, they kind of took over. You always know when you start writing a book and when you get into it a bit, mm-hmm. you always know that maybe something you've planned for them, the character, you think they, they wouldn't do that mm-hmm. now or they wouldn't say that. Now I have a a notebook beside me and I sometimes write down if I have a good idea but I'm working on this bit but there's good ideas going on in another bit of my brain I, I jot it down and so there's sometimes there's things that they might say about something mm-hmm. and I think no they wouldn't say that or they would say that and um
0: So you're always constantly reworking your ideas or
2: of... I rework every day and then I carry on, then I rework, then I rework and things I yes, it's like I'm doing your knitting. Right.
0: And the characters themselves somehow would, would you, you you think you've got a your your sort of main plot storyline, but then the characters kind of tell you no <laughs> yes, they do kind of tell me I, the main plot storyline with Charlie was what I knew. I knew that
2: he he would have started off his agency for because people think that the first person he found was his first assistant. Sister, mm-hmm. but no, the first person he found was himself, yeah mm-hmm. he tra- he traced his own background, and that's lace his his tracing of himself is laced through the book, yeah um so i knew I knew that would happen, and that didn't change mm-hmm. um Martha changed a bit, but um I didn't know she was going to have such a relationship with her ex
1: husband mm-hmm.
2: but I, I really quite liked it when she started to
1: spy on him. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, their relationship is extraordinary, really. It's it's quite terrifying, actually. There's a real venom there. And a set of sense of crisis. Yes,
2: that's right. And um, I was quite delighted with that. Because it's quite good fun to write.
0: (laughs) Not to do. And not only is um, the the book um, about this uh, detective agency, but um, it's also set in the wonderful... Of Portobello in Edinburgh. Porty, yeah. Yes. I yeah. Mean, I
2: was brought up in Portobello, ah, so that's right. um, part of why I've always got a real soft spot for it. But it's quite a good part, place for a detective agency because, you know, there's, I don't think there is one there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't <think> so too.
0: <laughs> Unless, you know, there's a sideline behind one of the ice cream parlours. Yes, stuff. it could be.
2: But um, yes, I, I quite like that, and I, I quite like the prom. I used to walk along the prom as a kid. Mm. And,
0: uh, and so did you choose Portobello because of your childhood memories? Because it's also set back in time, it's sort of late 60s, early 70s. Late 60s, early 70s, yes. Yeah. yes.
2: Um, I, partially because I didn't want them to be able to look up computers and Google things mm-hmm. and partially, so there's no mobile phones. Um, I, I think the invention of Google and mobile phones must have had a tremendous Effect on the plots of a lot of books. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know?
0: <Yeah. laughs> but, um, I know there's not much drama, especially mm-hmm. when you watch like cop shows on television, and yeah. and they just put dramatic music over somebody just typing away on a computer. It. It's <laughs> not really the same. <laughs> it's not.
2: <laughs> so it's partially that. no I quite like Martha and the Vandellas singing, dancing in the streets. So yeah. I managed to get that in. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Yes, I felt that it fitted well, and also I felt that um, Martha goes off to her, when she's young, before she becomes joins uh, a joint detective agency. She has a dream of being a rock and roll megastar, yeah. and I think that um, and she actually pursues it briefly. But um, and all of that could be done with them going about the country in an ancient van. Yeah, there, there is no. There, there was no sophistication in the same way back mm. then as there is now, uh, you know, she couldn't have done a podcast, she couldn't have put herself right. singing on YouTube, she, mm.
1: you know. Yeah, and if she had, then someone would have known that she was the very first all-girl band, band. <laughs> 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 which is just wonderful when you think about how many other girl bands might have thought that they were the first, or yes, they didn't know very, about you, they didn't yeah. know about Martha. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I saw <laughs> the very one of the first all-girl bands in the Usher Hall.
0: And um, the thing about um, both Charlie and Martha is that they're quite. There's a there's an element of the outsider to them. Yes. Um, were Were you attracted to that kind of character? Are you always attracted to that? Kind I
2: think of I character? am. I think I am. I think that um, when you're an outsider, you you got. The opportunity to write about somebody looking in, mm. and um, when Charlie and Martha are walking along the street, they say, "Right, we'll we'll we'll, we'll pretend we're real people." Mm. And yeah, I think that people do say that. I've heard people saying that. In fact, I've have a friend who's a psychologist, and she said, I'm just acting like I'm a real person. Yes.
1: <laughs> or real people have real lives, yes, yeah. right. something like yes, that. Yes. You know? so yeah. they,
2: they, Yes, I think they are, but both of them are tending to be outsiders. I'm thinking now of all the people I've written about, and I think there mm. are a lot of outsiders there.
0: Was there a different approach to it? Because you've, you've written a fair few... Yes. yes. No. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> but this is the first one after a bit of a break. Yeah. Is that right? Yes.
2: Yeah. That's right. Yes. That's a bit of a break. A life intervened with my, <laughs> my writing life. But, uh, <laughs> real life intervened with my work, writing life. But, uh, and did
0: you? How, how did you find coming back to it? Um, I got a buzz out of it. Um,
2: I, I, I did enjoy it. Oh, when I wrote the first chapter, I knew that I was onto a book that I would finish. Mm. Mm. You know, I knew that I liked it and I liked the people in it. So I, I was I was happy with it. And also, kind a bit of a break, it gives you a chance to come at everything from a different angle. You know, you can write something that has been buzzing away in the background, but you might not have got a chance to write mm. if you hadn't. Mm. gone away for a little while. Is
0: that Mm. how it works for you? Do you have like a sort of a collection of ideas rolling around in your head, and then you just pluck one, Mm. or or or, (laughs) do you pluck one? Is it as conscious as that, or does it? It's not
2: really one works better than the others, Mm. you know. And um, you like the people, and you know that you could develop their stories. Uh, So yes, Mm. I like to be in another book when the first one comes out. So that I don't think I don't worry about it right. going out yeah. into the world on its own.
0: Right. So you're writing yeah. still yes. now. Another yes. words. Yes. yes.
2: Yes. I would. I would always be doing that. It just. It just keeps you occupied. Keeps me out of mischief forming an all girl that.
1: and do you, do you so you do do you find that uh, characters cross between books though or will have to be renamed or they're all just very distinct they're all quite well, distinct yeah yes. so they're not going to appear yes. um could you tell tell us a bit about Sophie and where she came from
2: Sophie is Martha's mother I have yes, yes. Um, Sophie just developed really um when Martha leaves the interview she has to be going somewhere so she goes home and um then uh, and I knew that she lived at home but I didn't really know that Sophie had lost her husband that she mm. was widowed and that and so having made Sophie widowed it gave me something a sort of platform for the relationship between Sophie and Martha because uh, Martha was quite young when her father died and Sophie hasn't really forgiven him for dying Mm -hmm. you know she's sometimes plagued by the vision of him he fell from a roof and and died sometimes when she's stressed she has visions of a a falling man Mm. Um, so there's that but also she's kind of stepped back out of life in a way she has to make cakes and she has to look after Martha then when Martha comes back pregnant and then has a baby, Mm -hmm. she steps up and looks after the the little one. And um, her own life and her own view of herself has been kind of put to one side as she, you know, deals with everything that comes along. Mm -hmm. But um, she eventually has a kind of relationship with um, an uh, old flame. An old flame. <laughs> and what I quite like about it is that she's she. it makes her stop and look at herself and she's like, well, I, I, she's all this modern kissing that people do, I'm not, I don't know if I want to join in with that. And, and then she thinks, oh, oh and then, I'm not going to take my clothes off in front of a man, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and so she has her, her idea of a relationship is that cause this man is quite good looking and dresses quite well that he would be quite good to be seen out with, to walk along the street with, and what amused me about that is that that's a, a lot of men that's what they're looking for in a woman, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, I, th- I one of the things I love about the depiction of Sophie is that there are sort of two voices, or she's having conversations with herself yes. about these yes. issues or yes. worries or concerns. Yes. And, Again, but she's, she's
0: worrying about doing the sensible thing and doing the rebellious thing. Yes, that's right, well. yeah. yes. <laughs> yes,
2: when she goes to meet the man and he's not in the restaurant, this is the first time oh, in her life so cool. she's ever gone into a restaurant on her own. Yeah. And sat or, and ordered a glass of wine, and it's a kind of breakthrough for her too. She and
0: um, do you find that it's become easier to to write with having written a, a great number of books now? Um. Or do you, do you still feel... Does, does the newness of it still come back to you? Even the newness
2: still comes back to me. I still love it. I still love doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the first, the second book I wrote, um, I wrote Which in was six. Women talking yeah, dirty. Yes. I wrote that in six weeks, and I don't oh. know how I did that. Wow! No. <laughs> I, I still don't know how I did that, and I, I, I honestly couldn't do that
0: now. Mm-hmm. Um, was do you think that was just? The, uh, something that you needed to say and that's why it came out in such yes. a rush or? Yes, I
2: think that there's an element of that it, it just sort of builds up and builds up and it comes out in a rush And there's another thing that can happen sometimes is that um, you write something and burst out laughing at it yourself <laughs> <laughs> why, that's a good sign yeah. <laughs> it's like you didn't think of it it's like there's this funny line or this funny thought just lying out there in, in the ether waiting for you to come along and net mm. it and mm. claim it for your own there's, that happens still, but as for writing a book in six weeks, I really don't think I could possibly do yeah. that.
0: and that book, you know, that was that's that's probably the one that that everybody.
2: Yes, that's the one that people remember.
0: So, so you've done various kinds of books, you know, historical books and family sagas and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. Do you ha- Do you think you have a, a a kind of space or sensibility that you would call your own? Or
2: I think this book is where I'm going to go. Until I die, this mm-hmm. is uh, i don't think i'll move I, I quite like the i quite like the characters and i quite i'm I'm not going to be always writing about the same characters, but I quite like them and I quite like the shape of the book and how it's how it's gone mm-hmm. and i I quite like the yeah i quite like how it is so I think that would be the feel I would go for mm-hmm. rather than say historical books so though so, mm-hmm. i mean writing historical books is great fun mm-hmm. the the researchers uh, can absorb you totally, the stuff that you find out.
1: Yeah. But you didn't feel that, because you didn't feel that uh, 1969 is history. <laughs> no, not really. No. <laughs> not mm-hmm. really,
2: but sometimes you go into a, book, a bookshop and you'll find a 1969 book In the historical, yes. historical fiction <laughs> <classic>. <laughs> Exactly. Well, it, it depends on how old the book keep the booksellers are, you know. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yes.
0: Can you give away um, a little bit of what you're writing now?
2: I'm writing about um, two women who are looking back on their lives, and not anything like my second book. Um, one of them's a poet and one of them's a nurse. And the, the first chapter gives us a list of the things that they've done. So we know what might be coming. So there's like they've not shot so many years, so mm-hmm. many husbands. One gay, what three husbands? One gay, um, mm. thirteen cats. <laughs> so many cars, and, right. yeah. So many lovers, and you know, so many. S- all the silly things have done, and yeah. um, miscarriages, and stuff like that. And they take. We we go through a lot of that and the all their lives, and also um, one of them's a poet, and there's not a lot of poetry, in it and and the poetry is all. Dire, <laughs> so a bad for it. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And um, so, it, it's she wanted to be a poet, and she didn't understand why everybody in the world didn't want to be a poet. It was just, what? <laughs> you want to be a doctor? Good heavens! But um,
0: so and is that contemporary? Is it contemporary? Yes, scene? it's contem-
2: contemporary. It was actually started off because of um, being incapacitated and not moving about and I was sitting outside a supermarket um, and I saw some women walking along and nobody was looking at them and they were very attractive and you could see that they had all of them had a life Mm. but people were just walking past them and um, I noticed that. People were all looking at. Younger, skimpier women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, fair enough. They were very attractive. But you could see that these women, one woman was wearing a long black velvet outfit, mm-hmm. dressed uh, with yeah. bright red patent shoes. You would think people would have looked at her, but they didn't. Yeah. And uh, that mm-hmm. started me off, and I gave her a life and things. But um, Was that the poet? Yes. <laughs> poet. shiny and, red yes. shoes. <laughs> really. Um, so, yes. That's basically what it what it will be about, and um, also the the plan to it's also about them um freeing themselves finally to say what they think and mm. and do what they
0: want. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of books about that, but yes, yeah, so. well it can never be said enough. <laughs> <laughs>